We're going to be finishing up Mark chapter 1 today, continuing our series through the gospel of Mark and learning about the authority and the power and the identity of Jesus. And so Mark 1 verses 29 through 45, it's a long passage. This is church. We'll be fine. I'm going to read and pray, and then we're going to jump in to see what the Lord has for us today. So Mark 1, 29 through 45. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or were oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread and, uh, and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Let's pray. Jesus, we are are coming to this place believing that you have a power. You have the power that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you, that you not only have power in the spiritual realm, but you have power in this physical realm. You have power in the earth. You have power over disease, over death, over demons, over Satan, the enemy. You have power over our lives, that you use your power, not only for your glory, but for the good of your people. And so God, we are asking in this place for faith to believe that your power applies to us, that your power forgives us of our sins, that your power can cleanse us, can lift us from our sick bed and give us new life. God, I pray that you would speak to your people. Nobody is here to listen to me, God. We wanna hear from your Holy Spirit. We wanna hear from your words. So illuminate your words to our hearts, our minds, our lives. Transform us by your power. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, growing up, I would like to think that I was a good kid. I would like to think that I was a good kid, but I was not popular at all. Uh, when I was in junior high, I actually, the, the crew of kids that I hung out with was affectionately called by the cool kids, uh, the loser crew. No, no joke. Not even kidding you. I wanted so desperately to be popular that I decided I would start distancing myself from my fellow losers and in order to be accepted by the cool kids. And so I would start doing the things that they did which was make fun of 
the losers. And I made fun of everybody. I learned that I had a knack for cruelty. And so I leaned into that because it didn't matter how many people were hurt. If one person was laughing, someone was paying attention to me. And so I leaned into this and I did the very things that were done to me. And I completely turned away from who I was in order to be who I thought people wanted me to be. And in the end, the only thing that that resulted in is I had no friends. We can all be tempted to give in to the pressure to fit in the the mold that society and culture wants us to fit into. But in order to do so, we find ourselves losing ourselves. We find ourselves becoming somebody else. We lose ourselves and we lose our purpose in the process. See, the disciples and the crowds have tons of hopes, tons of expectations for Jesus. They have endless needs, countless opportunities for Jesus to be who they want him to be. But he remains absolutely committed to his priorities, absolutely committed to his purpose, absolutely committed to who he is. And in him, we find out who we truly are. We pick up our passage today in, at the end of Mark chapter 1. We pick up the story of Jesus just moments after he has cast out a demon from a man in a synagogue. Jesus had an authority that was unlike anything anyone had ever seen before. In his teaching and even the unclean spirits obeyed him. It was unlike anything that anyone had ever seen. And so what follows in our passage is a sequence of events. And although it is a long passage and it contains several individual stories, the author intends for all of this to be taken together. How do we know this? Forgive me. I'm about to get nerdy. We're going to go into the classroom for just a couple minutes. Like, please just bear with me. Mark has given us clues in the text that this is supposed to be taken together. There's a literary technique often used in the ancient world called chiasm, or sometimes it's called inclusio. I prefer chiasm because inclusio sounds like a spell from Harry Potter. So we're going to call it a chiasm. Most Western storytelling puts the moral of the story or puts the punchline at the end. But in the ancient world, they would often put the focus of what they were communicating in the middle and they would use parallel stories or parallel thoughts to build a frame around their main point. And so we see in our passage that it's bookended by stories of healing, specifically by the hand, the touch of Jesus. And so there's this frame that moves around the center to draw our eye, to draw our attention to a main, a main point. Artists use this with color and, uh, and movement to draw our eye to a particular point of the painting. And so authors do it as well. Chiasm does it with words and stories. The passage begins with stories of healing, of Jesus healing touch. But then in between these, there are two more parallel passages involving crowds, involving Jesus popularity, involving people all seeking Jesus. The entire city crowds the door of Simon and Andrew's house. And in the other instance, Simon finds Jesus in a desolate place to tell him that the crowds are looking for him. Jesus is popular. There's work for him to do. 
And then between these points, there's two more mentions of Jesus casting out demons, one in verse 34 and another in verse 39. Do you see how these parallel moments move us from the beginning and the end inward toward a middle point? And in a chiasm, this middle point often has no parallel in the passage. It stands alone. And so in the middle of this passage, the point that stands alone is this. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. At the center of Mark's point, even in all of the needs and the demands of Jesus' preaching and healing ministry and all the clamor of the crowds, Jesus is found alone in prayer. And for our time together, we're going to follow these parallels we're going to follow these parallel stories, these parallel thoughts, and we're going to get to the center and we're going to hear what the Lord has for us today. This passage begins and ends with the stories of Jesus' power. Jesus had demonstrated his authority miraculously over the spiritual realm. Now let's forget for a second that we know anything about Jesus and like we're reading this for the first time. Just because Jesus has authority over demons doesn't necessarily mean that he has authority over our physical lives. And so Mark continues the story and he says that Jesus has not only power over the spiritual realm, but the physical realm. In this broken world, we're afflicted not only spiritually, but with physical ailments. And so Jesus has compassion on our suffering, whether great or small. Look at this. He, he takes a woman with a fever. He holds her by the hand and he lifts her out of her fever. Right? A sickness, a, a fever that'd probably go away on its own. And he cleanses a leper, which we'll talk about what that means in a moment. He has authority over every sphere of life. And he has compassion on people, great and small, with illnesses and ailments, great and small. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so as if healing a woman with a fever wasn't crazy enough. I mean, it's like, okay, she had a fever. Have you, have you ever seen that happen? Have you ever seen someone in bed with a fever and someone comes up and says, come on, get up. And then all, like it's gone. Like this is crazy. This is miraculous. And if that's not crazy enough, a man with leprosy approaches him, falls to his knees and begs for cleansing. Now, leprosy was a name for a variety of skin diseases. Today, true leprosy is known as Hansen's disease. And it's a disease that causes skin lesions and nerve damage. A leprous person will eventually experience muscle weakness because of the nerve damage and lose all feeling in their extremities and they'll eventually die. Lepers were the walking dead. They were ancient zombies. Not only was this disease a death sentence, but until they died, lepers were not allowed to have any contact with anybody. They were unclean. Leviticus 13, 45 through 46 gives regulations for lepers. It says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of the head hang loose and shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone and his dwelling shall be outside the camp. So lepers had to cover their face and live, live in social isolation. Sound familiar? The person was ceremonially unclean. Now, look, I actually think that COVID 
has given us in the uh, Western world with, uh, with medical uh, developments and all these things has actually given us a good, uh, a better idea of what it actually means to be unclean in scripture. See, unclean doesn't mean sinful. Unclean doesn't mean evil. Being unclean doesn't mean that someone was bad. Ordinary life in the ancient world of first century Judaism would regularly bring people into contact with things that would make them unclean. It was a fact of life. Things like coming in contact with a dead body or with blood would make somebody unclean. So you fall, you scrape your knee, uh, you help your, your kid, your grandkid get cleaned up. You're now unclean because you've come in contact with blood. You didn't do a bad thing, but you're unclean because you came into contact with the source of life leaving the body. I would love to someday like dive deep into Jewish purity laws. Uh, that's for when we preach through Leviticus uh, right now. It's important for us to understand the spiritual and social impact on a person who was unclean, specifically lepers. The, there, there, were, there were spiritual implications for uncleanness. Being unclean meant that someone could not approach the presence of God in the temple. See, God is holy, perfectly, and perpetually clean. And so people were to honor his space by not defiling it with their uncleanness. But there were also social implications of uncleanness. Anyone who touched an unclean person was also made unclean. And so before they could be in public again, they would have to go to the temple uh, or before they could go to the temple, there were these rituals that needed to be performed over a period of time in order to be made clean again. But lepers were perpetually unclean. If God is perpetually clean, that's what it means to be holy. Lepers were perpetually unclean. They were banished from the presence of the Lord in the temple. But also in their perpetual uncleanness and because there was no hope of ever being made clean again, not even their own families were permitted to have contact with them for fear of them becoming unclean and spreading defilement through the community and essentially cutting all of God's people off from the presence of the Lord in the temple. And so they were forced into isolation. They lived by themselves outside of the city, cut off from God's presence and from the rest of society and from familial life. This is a death sentence, not only physically, but socially, relationally, and spiritually. This is a big deal. You can understand this man's desperation. He wasn't quarantined for two weeks. He lived quarantined. There was no end to this man's pain. Pandemic. He was the walking dead. And so he throws himself at Jesus' feet. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. But there's another issue here. Take everything that we just talked about regarding uncleanness. He was not allowed to be around people. And now he comes to Messiah, the anointed one, and risks making Jesus unclean. This could all fall apart. The whole Jesus story, the whole salvation story, the whole everything that he had come to do could fall apart in this moment if Messiah was cut off from God. He throws himself at Jesus' feet. And so Mark's readers are looking at this and going, what's going to happen? 
Is all this for naught? And so after all this time, is all of this going to come undone? And so Jesus stretches out his hand, says, I will. Touches a man who hasn't been touched in possibly years. Says, be clean. And instead of contracting the man's uncleanness, Jesus' holiness was more contagious and the man became clean. The leprosy left him immediately. More contagious than COVID or any other disease is the holiness of God because anyone who comes in contact with God and believes, regardless of their past, regardless of their social status, is made holy. This doesn't mean that we live with a blatant disregard to COVID or those who are most vulnerable. That would be a misunderstanding of Jesus' compassion. Jesus has compassion on this man and he reaches out and he touches him and he makes him clean. He doesn't tell people who are sick, stop whining, right? He doesn't tell Simon's mother-in-law or the leper to stop complaining. When we interact with people who have varying degrees of sensitivity to disease and to COVID or all of these things, we can't just treat it like it's nothing or like people are stupid for being concerned. Jesus has compassion. Jesus has compassion on people and he, and he leads them into wholeness and holiness. But this doesn't mean that we're to live in fear because Jesus has authority over disease. Though the leper was warned not to tell anyone but the priests, he goes around and he tells everybody. He tells everybody. Think about it. This man once, anytime he saw people, had to cover his face and shout, unclean. Imagine the identity you walk around with. Shouting, unclean, unclean. Now he gets to shout about the man who made him clean. He can't help it. He gets to proclaim the good news, not just healing him, him of a disease and saving his life, but restoring him to ceremonial access to God and to God's presence and to social and family life. This man's whole world that was undone has been brought back together. The rabbis used to say that it was just as difficult to heal a leper as it was to raise the dead. Because they were, they were dead. And Jesus brings him back to life, returns him to his family. This is the power of our Lord. Amen. Amen. These stories of healing demonstrate that Jesus is not only Lord in heaven, but he is Lord over all creation. And it's proof that Jesus cares about every sphere of life. His power over the physical world is a shout into this broken world that it matters. Church, this world matters. What you do with this world matters. Your body matters. What you do with your body matters. Your health matters. Your relationships matter. It all matters to God. If it didn't, Jesus wouldn't do anything about it. But you matter to him. Great and small needs matter to him. Jesus cares about your whole person. Everything about you, any brokenness in mind, body, emotions, spirit, it grieves him. 
relational brokenness grieves him. And so when Jesus comes and raises Simon's mother-in-law from out of her fever, or when Jesus reaches out his hand and cleanses the leper, restoring not only their bodies, but their place in their family, their place in society, their place in worship, Jesus is not only healing the whole person, but he's healing the community. This man was not only cut off from the community, the community was cut off from him. If you disappear, we all suffer. It's not just you who suffers being cut off from the body of Christ, but if you disappear and go away and we don't get to worship with you, we feel that. The body grieves that. You matter to Jesus. You matter to us. You matter to the person sitting next to you and to the person sitting across the parking lot from you. You matter. To put it this way, every aspect of your being matters because God desires that we worship him with every aspect of our being. He wants all of it and he is worthy of all of it. So by being restored holistically, we are restored to holistic worship, able to worship and reflect God in all that he has made us to be. These acts of Jesus' power give attention to everything that ails us, great and small, from a fever to leprosy, from something that she'd probably recover from to something that would have killed him and everything in between. The point is this, that Jesus has compassion on the sick, all of them. All of the sick. Jesus has compassion on the broken. Physical impairments are no greater than psychological illness or emotional unwellness. All of it matters. And he has compassion on it all. He's not fearful. He touches the leper. He has compassion on all that are afflicted. And he has the power to heal. So where is your affliction? Where is your suffering? Where is your impairment? You have not yet been made perfect. Where is your area of grief, your sorrow, your brokenness? Where is it? And have you brought it to Jesus? Have you brought it to the elders of the church as James 5 tells us to so that the elders can pray for you? Where is your brokenness? Are you just learning to live with it? You look around and you see that what you're dealing with isn't as bad as the person next to you. And so you're learning to live with it. What if Simon had said to Jesus, "Ah, she'll live. Or if the leper said, this is too big. I'll be honest with you, this this exposes my lack of faith, church. Um, This exposes my, my lack of faith that God would heal me. Uh, a few years ago, I was, I was diagnosed with what's called a fourth nerve palsy. It means that there's a cranial nerve in my head that controls the muscles of my left eye that doesn't work. And so I have double vision when I look out of the, the right side. These glasses help, but I've got, I've got double vision when I look, out, I look out to the side. Fun fact, it's also why my head is cocked to the right and I talk out of the right side of my mouth. I have a slight paralysis on the left side of my face. It's probably something I was born with. Uh, But as I've gotten older, 
uh, it has become more noticeable. And when I first learned about it, my posture toward it was, man, that's a bummer. Could be worse. I know, I know people with worse. Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have a tumor. That's not what's causing it. You know, it, it, it could be worse. But here's the thing. If I truly believe that Jesus has the power to heal, then why have I never asked him to heal me? Church, I don't think I've ever asked Jesus to heal me for this. I've complained. I've lamented. I don't, I, I don't, to, I was thinking about it this morning and I was just like, Jesus, I like, I know you're calling me to preach this, but this exposes my lack of faith. It's too small. Jesus, don't waste your time with this. I know people who are dying. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Don't waste your time with me, Jesus. And I think, I think sometimes our lack of faith is exposed by thinking that our need is too small, probably more than it's exposed by thinking our need is too big. What's your affliction? What have you learned to deal with? What is it that you're experiencing that's not as bad as that guy or that gal? And do you have faith? Do I have faith that Jesus actually cares about that and to bring wholeness to our bodies, to our minds, to our emotions, to our spirits? Jesus cares about each and every one of you and he cares about every aspect of every individual and he is able to bring his power over the physical and the spiritual realms into your life and bring healing into my life and bring healing because he's restoring all things. See, the presence and the power of God's kingdom is driving out darkness. It's like light where the the darkness reigns and you flip the switch and there is no place for it to hide. Light and darkness cannot coexist. The kingdom of sin, the kingdom of brokenness, the kingdom of illness, the kingdom of disease. It can't exist when the kingdom of God's light switch is flipped on into our lives and drives it out. Jesus has like this bubble around him. Wherever he goes, Satan must leave. Wherever he goes, illness must scatter. Wherever he goes, he brings wholeness and cleanness and vitality and life and joy and peace and love. Wherever he goes, he brings it and you can't fight against it and it's here and receive it. Receive what the kingdom of God wants to do, what Jesus wants to do in your lives. In church, I'm preaching to myself. Trust me, y'all hold me accountable and make sure this week I ask for healing. Come ask me. Now let's take this out of the realm of disease. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Have you asked? Let's ask him together. There are times when Jesus doesn't heal. Paul prayed three times for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And, 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 and Paul wasn't healed. God's answer is his decision. That is for another sermon. But what we have in here is the invitation to implore our Lord, Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. He is compassionate. 
He is a compassionate Savior, and we know that he has the power to heal. And it's because of this compassionate power of Jesus that we see an exponential growth in Jesus' popularity. The entire city has come to his door looking for Jesus, come to Simon's door looking for Jesus. And those he heals, they leave and they just go tell more people and and, and, and he heals more. And there's just this constant wave of need, constant wave of people needing healing. And, and, And so Jesus wakes up in the morning while it's still dark and he sneaks away and nobody knows where he is. And they find him and they say, Jesus, there are needs People need you. They're looking for you. There's work to be done. Where have you been? It's time to get back to work. And Jesus' words here, I'll be honest with you, are super confusing. Jesus says, this man who has has all power and, and his compassion knows no bounds, tells his disciples, hey, let's get out of here. We're gonna go to the next town and, 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 and preach there because that's why I came. Last week, I told you that sometimes you'll read the Bible and you'll come across something that offends you. Right? This is offensive. Jesus leaves people in their need. Why? What's going on? Jesus, why are you doing this? This can be offensive. Why would Jesus leave? I think the reason that, that, that Jesus leaves town uh, has nothing to do with the value of that ministry, the healing ministry, it has everything to do with what is becoming the source of his popularity. See, in the previous passage, they're amazed by his teaching, the authority of his teaching. He casts out a demon and they're still talking about his teaching. His authority over demons is just secondary in that passage. But now we see that the draw, the drive to Jesus is to see him perform a miracle. And so his popularity is becoming about this, 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 uh, 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 his, the miraculous. They're clamoring for an experience. As Messiah, he is a worker of miracles and and healings. These proved his authority. They are good things. They come with the good news of the kingdom of God and the presence and the power of Jesus. But if people continue to be blinded by the signs of power, they would miss the reason he came. He says the reason that he came was to instruct people and to invite them into the gospel of the kingdom. Now, this is a temptation for churches today. We can all fall into the temptation to judge a a church's health by its popularity or by the popularity of its ministries or by the popularity of the preacher. How many people are in the seats? Pastors can make decisions based on the desire to fill seats rather than feed sheep. This is a temptation that we all experience. We are no different reality. I am no different as one of your pastors. But what good is a full church if it is not a filled church? What good is people in seats if we do not have the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in the people in those seats? Ultimately, we we know we know that, that uh, uh, what Jesus does, what he brings, what he gives, what he does is, is a good thing. And the disciples, are, they're focused on that. But we also find out later throughout the scriptures, throughout the gospels, that ultimately the disciples were focused on their own popularity. Right? They wanted to see Jesus' ministry grow because they're with him. 
And they get to be with him and they get to be uh, associated with him. And so we'd be foolish to think that we're any different. Whether the preacher or the people, there's always a temptation toward the popular church because we feel important when we're participating in something we think is important. At the same time, this can also be why people gravitate towards smaller churches. Because in a smaller church, each person may receive more attention and have more influence, again, making each individual feel important. We have this same temptation when we choose churches, when we judge churches, when we assign health or value to churches. Now, I don't say this to shame or to elevate big churches or small churches. I, demonstrate, I say this to demonstrate that we, like the disciples, are often concerned with the popularity of our ministry and the popularity of the things that we associate with. We get our identity by what we associate with, by what slogans we agree with, by what church we go to, what ministry we participate in, what community group or home group we're a part of, we, we, we find our identity in who we are with. In what we are with, in what we are known for, potentially distracting us from our priority, which is the same priority demonstrated in Jesus' life in our passage. This is the central point of Mark's chiasm and everything else is pointing to it. Jesus' priority in life was intimacy with the Father. He sneaks away from it all to pray. He refuses to be distracted by all of the good things, good things. He refuses to be distracted by all that can be done. And he is relentless about pursuing the one thing that must be done. Intimacy with the father must be cultivated. And so he prays. And so he seeks God in a desolate place, literally a wilderness place. And whether or not Jesus is returning to the the literal wilderness, he is escaping from the busyness of life. He is escaping from the needs. He's escaping from the expectations that people have put on him and being alone with the Lord. He went someplace where he could be alone with God. Now, remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the wilderness, that it's a place where God's people received their identity as God's son. And it's the place where Jesus' divine sonship was communicated by the voice in heaven when he was baptized in the wilderness by John the Baptist and when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. But here in the busyness of fruitful ministry, where he's operating in his identity and everything seems to be going well, he steps aside to get alone with God and he's reminded of his purpose. He came to bring the good news of the kingdom of God. Healings are good, but Jesus came to preach. Even Jesus' own ministry flowed from his intimacy with the Father. The demands of the crowd could have kept him busy for years. The needs, the demands could have kept him away from his mission. And if we're not careful to get away from the crowds, the demands, and the needs, we also, as a church and as individuals, may be missing out on God's true purpose for us, or worse, we could be missing out on God himself. If we are not cultivating intimacy with him. There's lots of good things that we can do. But it's the presence of the Lord. It's in the presence of the Lord that we're reminded of what we must do. Just be with him. Look, the presence of God is the best thing we have going for us as a church. Absolutely. It's ab- if, if, if God's presence is not here, 
Why are you sitting in a parking lot? Presence of God is the most important, most valuable, best thing that we have going for us at Reality Carpinteria. Jesus says, let's go to the other cities to preach for that's why I came. This was his purpose. This was his focus because healings restored someone's health for a lifetime, but Jesus was here to give eternal life. Does a great deal, a great deal of good to heal someone from a fever, to heal someone from leprosy, to heal someone from cancer. But all of these people in the gospel narrative and all of these people that we are surrounded by are going to die. It does a good deal to a good deal of good to, to, to heal them for a lifetime. But Jesus came to give eternal life. Jesus came to die so that we could live. He prioritized time with the Father and the Spirit kept him focused on his purpose. He didn't come here to be popular. He didn't come to heal a few diseases. Jesus' purpose was to come and die. And if all Jesus did was heal, there'd be no reason to kill him. If all Jesus did was heal, he wouldn't, there would be no reason for the Pharisees to put him to death. It was not his healing ministry that landed him on the cross. It was his preaching ministry. John 10, 31 tells us after Jesus taught about his authority to give eternal life and his oneness with the Father, that the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus' words about the kingdom of God and how it had come in him is what enraged the religious leaders. They didn't kill him because of his power to heal. His power to heal only verified that he had the authority to call them out on their hypocrisy. And, and, and people were following him and leaving the traditions that had given the Pharisees power for so long. And so they plotted to kill him. They plotted to remove the threat. But Jesus' authority was not only over the lives of others. It's not only over the spiritual realm, the physical realm. Jesus has authority over his own life. He says, no one takes my life from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. So Jesus' death on the cross was this willing decision that he made with his father before the world began. And in his death on the cross, our sin is forgiven. Our shame is removed. Our lives are restored. Our relationships are restored. Our uncleanness is made clean. By his resurrection, we are brought into the fullness of life, eternal life, abundant life. You see, sin is like leprosy absolutely like leprosy. It shows its signs on the outside, but in our actions, it shows its sign in the way we live our lives. But inside, we're losing our ability to feel because our consciences are seared and we're numb and it separates us from God. And there are many who are in sin who will say, God still loves me, which is true. But if you knew that your spouse was still going to love you, does that give, me, give you permission to have an affair? We don't sin because God will still love us. That's ridiculous. We don't apply that to any other relationship in our life. 
An affair will do irreparable damage to the trust and the intimacy in a marriage. Sin brings damage to our intimacy, our experiencing intimacy with God, our Father. And the terrifying truth about sin is that it is like leprosy. It numbs. It desensitizes us to the damage that it causes. Lepers would injure themselves and have no idea. They wouldn't feel it. And so many of them died of an infection. And sin numbs us. And the damage that sin causes to us, we don't even feel when we're living in it and desensitized to it. It's this infection that will spread throughout our whole bodies, our whole lives, all of our relationships. And in the end, it will kill us. We're injuring ourselves and we don't even know it. This is why Jesus came. So that we could feel grace again. This is why Jesus came, so that we could be convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment, which sounds heavy-handed, but God bless us for recognizing, for for him being able to, to give us the ability to feel again. Conviction hurts. Conviction doesn't feel good. But if you didn't feel it, that's even more scary. Feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit is evidence of his, of his participation in your life. Sensitizing you again. Helping you to feel that this thing in your life is killing you. It's a, conviction is a beautiful thing. Sin is like leprosy. It will numb us and drive us away from God's people and drive us away from the face of God himself. And Jesus came to heal not just a few lepers, but to save our souls from the sin that will kill us and cut us off from God, forcing us into eternal social and spiritual isolation. But thanks be to God in Christ Jesus, it does not have to be so. You can can celebrate that. Jesus' power may be getting your attention right now. Jesus' power may get our attention, but it is his purpose in his death that gives us life. Jesus was committed to his mission. His popularity would not interfere with his purpose. Intimacy with the Father is what guided him in all of his life. And if we repent and if we prioritize intimacy with Jesus, then we too will find life and find our purpose in worship of him. It may not make you popular. I will promise you it will not make you popular, but it will make you holy. It will make you like Jesus. And that is a much better thing. Father, we love you. Thank you for sending your son to heal. Thank you for sending your son to preach. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross, to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us of our spiritual leprosy so that we can feel your grace again. Thank you for the conviction of your Holy Spirit, which is evidence that we're feeling your presence, that you are with us. Empower our turning away. Empower our repentance. 
repentance, to turn away from our sin, to turn away from that which is killing us and to turn toward that which gives life. Jesus, we fall at your feet. We say, if you will, you can make us clean. Lord, heal us. Heal our minds. Heal our hearts. Heal our souls. Heal our relationships. God, heal our, our heal, heal us. May we feel you. May we feel you stretch out your hand saying, I will be clean as you touch us and cleanse us of all that defiles us. No matter who you are, no matter who you are, what you've been, what you've done, the word of the Lord Jesus today is, I will be healed, be clean. And God, we commit ourselves to you. We entrust ourselves to you. Ask that you would have your way in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.